Let me begin reading verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was going out from Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, arise, he's calling for you. And casting aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and began following him on the road. This is one of those incidents in the gospel that we're inclined to read right through. The paragraph that precedes this episode in Jesus' life is obviously very significant. It has to do with the nature of servanthood. The uh, paragraph that follows has to do with the triumphal entry, and that's obviously a very important passage of of the Gospels. But this passage we're inclined to read right on by and perhaps not think too seriously about it. Carolyn asked me this week, as we were talking about this passage uh, along about Wednesday, she said, what are you going to say? And I said, I haven't the foggiest idea. It's a passage that doesn't easily lend itself to uh, a great deal of, uh, of application. But as I was thinking about this passage later in the week, it dawned on me that this is the answer. This miracle is the answer to the question that we so often ask about servanthood. What does it mean to be a servant of Jesus Christ? Because the whole concept of servanthood raises all sorts of questions in our mind. To what extent do I have the right to ask that people meet my needs? Can I ever tell someone that I have wants, that I have needs, that I have concerns? Do I always have to have round heels? Am I a constant pushover? Am I always groveling and serving? What does servanthood mean? And uh, it struck me uh, what should have been obvious all along, that this is the passage that gives us the answer to to that question. Now, according to verse 32 of this chapter, Jesus and and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. They were on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. Jesus was going to die. Mark tells us in verse 32 that Jesus was the head of the other disciples. That is, he was walking faster than they were. Luke tells us that he had set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. He was hurrying there to meet his fate. There was a warrant out for his arrest. The officials uh, were committed to killing him. He knew, the disciples knew, that when he walked into the city, he would be captured and, and put to death. That's why Mark tells us they were amazed. They were astonished that he would go so readily to his death. And furthermore, they were afraid because they thought they would be caught up in the dragnet with him and they too would, uh, 
would lose their lives. And so they must have been talking about this whole matter of Jesus going to Jerusalem and his imminent death and theirs. And uh, they must have stopped off uh, for lunch somewhere along the way. And as they were gathered around Jesus, he began to teach them again about his, his death. Verse 33. He took the twelve aside, began to tell them what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him up to the Gentiles. What a bitter sting there must have been in that fact that, that God's people delivered Jesus over to the Gentiles to kill their Messiah. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And this wasn't good news. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even news. At least on two other occasions, Jesus had uh, taught the disciples about his impending death. When they were in Caesarea Philippi and Peter made his great uh, confession of Jesus, our Lord uh, explained that he would go to his death in Jerusalem. A little later, uh, in fact, in, in Mark, uh, a little earlier, just a few days earlier, when they were on Mount Tabor, and Jesus took with him Matthew, or uh, James and John and, and Peter, and uh, they listened to Jesus in discussion with Moses and Elijah, and they talked about his exodus, his departure, his death. And uh, then as they went down the mountainside together, Jesus further elaborated on that, on that death. So there, there had already been two occasions on which Jesus had explained that he would go to Jerusalem. He would be delivered over to the Gentiles. They would kill him, but he would, he would rise again. That's why Mark tells us that again he took the twelve aside. And he told them that his, uh, that his death was imminent. Now the disciples knew enough of the connection between Jesus' death and his entering into glory to know that the next step would be the coming of, of the kingdom, and therefore they wanted to, uh, to make a request of Jesus concerning the kingdom. Verse 35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, these are the two in the inner circle along with Peter, came to him saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Is that a, uh, an open-ended question or what? That's the sort of question that our children so often ask. Hey, Dad, would you do something for me? And uh, if we're wise, we say, uh, what would you like for me to do for you? Which is precisely what the way the Lord responded. Verse 36, and I want you to notice this verse, and I want you to underscore it in your mind if you don't underscore it in your Bible. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. These were the uh, positions not only of proximity to the king, but also of prominence. After all, they had the right to ask for this gift. They were in the inner circle. James and John even uh, had connections. They were friends with the high priest. They were were well known. And they were certainly in Jesus' inner circle and And they felt they had the right to ask, when you come into your kingdom, they asked, can one of us sit on your right and one sit on the left? Now, I don't know what happened to Peter. I don't know. He he obviously got left out. They weren't thinking of 
of Peter, they were thinking of, of themselves. Now, this wasn't the first time that this issue of uh, gaining glory had come up. Mark tells us that a few days before, when they were in Capernaum, they were coming back from a, a preaching tour, and as they were journeying toward Capernaum, the disciples were playing mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the greatest of us all? Jesus had told the apostles that they, that the twelve would sit on thrones ruling the, the tribes of Israel. So they expected to have authority in the kingdom. But the debate now was who is the greatest of the greatest? Who will have the inside track? And uh, when they came into the house, it was probably Peter's house. That's generally where, when they stayed, where they stayed, Jesus sat down and he began to talk to them. I think he must have asked this question with a, with a twinkle in his eye. He, he said, what, what were you men talking about on, on the way to Capernaum? And no one said a word. And uh, Jesus did a, a unexpected thing. I, I, I think it's Peter's little boy that we're talking about here. I'm not sure. I like to envision it as Peter's little boy. Peter's little boy is probably just like Peter, a rasty, hyperactive little rag muffin. And, and uh, he came running through the living room about that time with his legs pumping, and Jesus just grabbed him as he came by and put him on his lap and held him, and his legs were still going. And, and he held that, you know, the kids in, in Israel then is now... They didn't have parks to play in. They played in the dirt. It was just, just a dirty little rug rat. And Jesus grabbed him and held him. And he did not rebuke the, the disciples for their desire to be great. He, he said, he who receives one of these little ones receives me. And he who receives me receives the Father. And he who will be first should be last. And he who wants to, he who's last shall be first. And then he set the little guy down and he steamed on out of the room and, and the Lord went on to other things. It's one of those very, very poignant moments in our Lord's life. It tells us a lot about his perspective and God's perspective on things. It's another example of the Lord turning our thinking up, upside down and, and taking all of our conventional values and exchanging them for his. It tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us about the way God looks at little children and the great value that he puts on a little child. These little ones, he says, they believe on me. He loves them, cares about them. They're precious to him. They're very, very valuable. It tells us also something about the grief that he must experience when little children are molested or, or battered or mistreated or overlooked. It must break his heart. It also tells us something about the value that God places upon those who take little children seriously. See, again, here, here is a, here's an example of how the world has turned everything upside down. Who do we pay the most in education? The people who work with adults. Those are the most important people in terms of, of salary. Who do we pay the least? Those who work with children. And yet I think our Lord would turn that whole thing upside down. When I was growing up in Dallas, I, I had a teacher, Sunday school teacher. Her name was Anna Mae Lincoln. She was Mrs. Lincoln to everybody else. She was Aunt Anna Mae to me. She was old when I met her. She was old when I left Dallas. She's always been old. <clears throat> 
I think I had her in the six-year-old apartment or something. I don't remember, but uh, she was just a wonderful, wonderful woman. She really loved children. She was there when I first started going to that church when I was a child. She was there when I left, and she was still teaching. I don't recall that she was ever... um, she was ever brought up in front of the congregation and given a plaque. I don't think anyone ever recognized that she was there. I don't, I don't think she was ever the center of attention. I know Christianity Today never wrote her up. She just faithfully plugged away at, at working with little children. I uh, went off to college, and I went into the service, and when I got out of the service, I went to seminary. And guess who my Greek professor was in seminary? Her husband. Dr. Fred Lincoln, wonderful, godly, humble, elderly old man. He was old, too, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Wonderful scholar and teacher, wrote scholarly uh, journals and articles, wrote in scholarly journals, wrote articles. I can still remember, it used to be in my day that when they had chapel, all of the professors would come in with their academic robes, you know, their long robes with all the fur on the collar and the... And the capes, and uh, they're, they're each cape indicating what kind of degree they had and where they received it from. It was all very impressive, and they would pray. Here would be Dr. Lincoln with his robes. I, uh, I was thinking about that this last week. Remember the story Jesus told about the big banquet when we all get to heaven, and, and we gather there with the Lord, and, and we start finding places to sit down and and some uh, presume upon themselves, they, they presume upon the Lord, really, and, and they take positions of honor that others shouldn't have. And, and, they're, they're, and the Lord has to invite some up to the... I, I, I thought, now, when Aunt Anna Mae comes in, she, knowing her, she would sit at the very end of the table. And I'm sure that Fred would be invited up to the front because he's, he was an honorable, godly man, Dr. Lincoln. But I envisioned in my mind an enemy coming in, sitting down, and the Lord saying, uh, Anime, w- w- would you come up here, please? I'd like for you to sit. And Fred, would you move over a seat? <laughs> down there a little bit. And Anime, you sit right there. And Fred, would you take off that ridiculous-looking robe, please? <clears throat> now, that's a little silly. But, I, you know, I, I, I really think that's the kind of value that our Lord places on people who minister in obscure, unnoticed ways. Those of you that are laboring in our Christian school or laboring in public school, those of you that minister in our Sunday school, nobody ever notices. You're not one of the big shots. Often you're overlooked. But God sees. He knows. And as Jesus put it, the last will be first and the first will be last. Some of the big shots are going to sit way down at the end of the table. And some of you that are quietly ministering to these little ones are the ones who are going to be seated at Jesus' right hand in his left hand. Now, that's what our Lord was trying to get across to the disciples. They still hadn't gotten the message. And so they ask again, can we sit up front with you? Now, I don't know what their motivation was. The fact that Jesus doesn't rebuke them doesn't indicate whether they were right or wrong because very often he did not directly rebuke someone who was wrong. He often would tell a story that would point out their error or he would, uh, in some other way, more obliquely, 
minister to their need. So I don't know what their motivation was. I know if they wanted prominence, they were wrong. If they sought to sit up front so people could notice them, that was wrong. Jeremiah said, do you seek things, seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. If anything, we ought to seek obscurity. That's what Jesus meant by the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So if their goal was to be noticed, if their goal was to be the center of attention, if their goal was to be prominent or to have prestige or to be close to the center of power, they were wrong. That was sinful. Now, Lord does an interesting thing. This amounts to a thumbnail sketch on leadership. If you want to know what our Lord's management model is, this is it. I want to read to you the verses uh, verses 37 and following. They say, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's talking about his suffering and death. To share a cup. To be immersed in baptism together was to be identified with someone or to share their destiny. He's saying, are, are you able to face what I have to face in, in, in coming days? And they answer, we can do it. We're able. Verse 39. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. You will suffer. And they did. James was the first of the apostles to perish. He was murdered by Herod. John was the last, as far as we know. He was exiled to Patmos, languished there until he died. But, verse 40, to sit on my right hand or on my left, this is not mine to give. He's speaking out of his incarnation. During the time that our Lord was flesh, he laid aside the independent use of his attributes. He was totally dependent upon God, fully human as well as fully God. But he laid aside the use of that, of that deity. And so it was not his to give at this point. It was the Father's prerogative. To sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it, that is, the places, have been prepared. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant toward James and John because they hadn't thought of it first. They'd been upstaged. James and John stole the march on them, made them angry. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now let me explain. Ambition is not wrong. Satan takes ambition and twists it and we become ambitious for ourselves. But to be ambitious for the kingdom of God is not wrong. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Hallowed be your name, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're aligning ourselves with God and his plan to, to bring the whole world into submission to God. 
When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying, may, may people take your name seriously. May they stop trivializing the name of God, and, and may they, they take seriously the fact that God is who he is. And secondly, may your kingdom come as your sovereignty be manifest, and may people submit to your will here on earth as they do in heaven. When we pray that prayer, we're aligning ourselves with the purposes of the kingdom of God, and that, that's good, and that's right, and that's proper. And for us to want to serve and to be useful in the kingdom and to touch the lives of others and enrich the lives of others is a good thing. We ought to be ambitious for Christ's sake, but not for ourselves. We should not seek great things for ourselves. Now, it is true that God exalts some prominence. Some people become more prominent than others. They're, they're more recognized. They're noticeable. They're close to the centers of power. But that is a gift that's something God gives, and it's my impression that it rarely has anything to do with a person's talents and abilities. Some of the most talented people I know never get noticed. And some of the most inept people are the ones that invariably end up up front. I think God delights to just, again, turn everything on its head so we'll realize where the power comes from. I often think of Billy Graham in that light. I, there are any number of people right here in this congregation that are far more articulate than Billy Graham. But God has chosen to exalt that man and display his grace through him. That's a gift. It's very helpful to us to realize that when a person is exalted, that's something God has done for him. That frees us from jealousy. It frees us from bitterness. It helps us to understand that, that God is not just overlooking us. There's another plan. The, the other thing that I observe about this, uh, this teaching on leadership is that the prominence is very costly. Leadership entails suffering. Jesus said, are, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be immersed into the baptism that I'm to be immersed in? And they were, and you will be too. If you're thrust into a position of, of prominence, the hammer, the saw, the file, those are the ways that God takes the rough edges off of us. Makes us more mellow, makes us sweeter, makes us easier to live with, makes us better leaders, more humble leaders. Keeps us from taking, taking ourselves too seriously. Years ago, I uh, cut out a poem that someone wrote. It was written to men, but it certainly has application to, uh, to all of us. It goes like this. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him. By every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Remember the Apostle Paul? God said, promised Paul he'd stand before kings. Paul stood before Nero, the emperor of the of the Roman Empire, 
and proclaim the gospel. What a privilege. And yet, God also promised suffering. That's the hammer. That's the file. Those are the, that's the rasp. Those are the hurts and the pains of life that, that prepare us for eminence and for a position of, of leadership. It's the name of the game. The, uh, the other observation I would make about this, uh, about this teaching on leadership is that leadership in the church is very much unlike leadership in the world. He says the, the Gentiles uh, determine leadership by those that they have under them. In other words, the test is how many people do I have working for me? That's often the way we assess a person's power and authority. Jesus says it must not be so among you. He's not attacking the Gentiles. He's simply saying that's all they know. But it must not be so among you. The real test of authority and power in the church is servanthood. Are you a servant? That's the question. Are you willing to give yourself in quiet, unseen, unnoticed, loving acts to others? Because... That's the kind of leader Jesus was. That's, that's the point of verse 45. He's the supreme example. He paid the price. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's the key to the, to the Gospel of Mark, as many of you know. Uh, a few years ago, Ray Stedman wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, a two-volume commentary, and he divided it into two parts right around this, uh, this verse, the first nine chapters. He called uh, the servant who rules... And the second half, the second, comment, the second volume of the commentary called The Ruler Who Serves. So you rule, the rulers serve. and that, that, that's, that's the basis of leadership and, and ruling within the church. It's, a, it's an attitude of service, concern, love for others. Thinking in terms of the needs of others rather than, than your own needs. Looking after others. As Paul puts it, not... Thinking about your own own things only, but thinking about the things of others. Doing those uh, unseen, quiet, unnoticed acts that count for so much, but very often are devalued by others because of of the way our, our world assesses our activities. Now the question is, what relationship does all of us have to the story of Bartimaeus? It appears as though there's no relationship at all. Well, let me explain. I believe that this, that the story of Bartimaeus, this miracle, is, is actually a parable or a metaphor, if you want to put it that way. It's a powerful example of, of what it means to be a servant. And it raises the question that defines servanthood. Remember the question that Jesus asked when the disciples came? We want you to do something for us. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And if you notice, that's exactly the same question that he asked of of Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? And I believe that's the question that defines servanthood. What do you want me to do for you? Now let me explain. Verse 46, they came out of Jerusalem. Now, those of you that are in the growth groups probably wrestle with the fact that uh, Matthew, and, or pardon me, Luke, says that this encounter with Bartimaeus took place while they were going into Jericho, 
Matthew and Mark say that it took place as Jesus was coming out of Jericho, and obviously it can't be both. So what, what shall we say? Is this a conflict in the, in the Gospels? No, not at all. There are various uh, explanations for this seeming discrepancy. One is, is that there were two Jerichos. There was the old Israelite Jericho, and there was the Roman Jericho that Herod built. Uh, he built a summer resort down by the Jordan, and it was set, set off quite a ways, a few miles to the north, from the old Jericho. If you visit there today, you'll see the ruins of ancient Jericho a little bit to the south of the new Jericho, which is to the north. And that's the way it was in Jesus' day. Some commentators say that Jesus was going from one Jericho to the next. As he came out of one Jericho and into another, he encountered Bartimaeus. There's another possibility, and this is the one that commends itself to me for some reason. I think both are right. I think that Bartimaeus started uh, shouting at Jesus as he entered Jericho. He went into the city. That's where he met Zacchaeus. That's where he had dinner with Zacchaeus, spent the evening with him. And as he came out of Jericho, Bartimaeus was still there yelling at the top of his voice. There was a great crowd gathered around Jesus. They were listening to his teaching. And here this rude, crude, uncouth beggar begins to shout at the top of his lungs. The word that Mark uses makes it very clear that uh, he was yelling. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He kept saying it. He said it when Jesus came into the city. He said it when Jesus came out of the city. In the meantime, he had picked up a friend. Uh, Matthew tells us there were actually two blind men seated there on this, as he came out of Jericho. Another blind friend had joined him, and no one paid any attention to him except to try to shut him up. Trying to listen to Jesus. He's teaching us. We, got, we have to hear it. We have to listen. This is important stuff. And pay attention to what Jesus says. We want to learn. He's the teacher. And uh, Bartimaeus is over in the corner. Uh, by the way, Beggars in those days are like beggars today. They are at the bottom of the social totem pole. He was a ragged, dirty beggar that no one wanted anything to do with. Even his name suggests that he was a nobody. He was the son of, of Timaeus, whoever that was. He doesn't even have a name in the account. He's just he's a forgotten, overlooked man. And Jesus has this enormous multitude around him, and he's teaching people, and they're listening to him, and... The, and and Jericho was a, was a center of wealth in those days. These were powerful, prominent people, the kind of people you want to reach with the gospel. He had a short time to do what he had to do. He had an infinite job to do and a finite amount of time to do it. And uh, he needed to invest his life in people that would count. And this man is yelling at the top of his lungs, Help me! Have mercy on me! And the crowd keeps saying, Be quiet! Shut up! We're trying to listen to Jesus. And finally, Jesus hears him. There's this plenty of cry, and he, he says, Tell him to come here. Man throws off his garments, which would be unlikely for a blind man because he'd never find him again if he didn't have his sight. He leaped up, he ran over to Jesus, and Luke tells us that, uh, uh, Mark, Mark tells us also, he, he said, Jesus said, what, what do you want me to do for you? And the man said, I want to receive my sight. And Luke tells us that Jesus touched him, and he received his sight, and then he followed him on the road to Jerusalem. 
and uh, evidently became a, a member of the early church. That may be why he's described here as the son of Timaeus. He became someone who's fairly well known within, within the church, an early disciple of Jesus. He saw the events of the passion, of Jesus' passion, his death, burial, and resurrection, and followed him to the end of, of his days. What's the, what's the point of all of this? Well, it's, it's our Lord's preoccupation with those in, in need. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Mercy inv- invokes love. It can also, uh, it has the idea of helping those that are helpless. Uh, George MacDonald tells of an epitaph he saw once in a Scottish uh, uh, graveyard. Engraved on a tombstone, he saw the words, Here lies Martin Elgin Broad. Have mercy on my soul, O God, as, as I would do if I were God and ye were Martin Elgin Broad. And that's the way we feel. And some of us get overlooked and unnoticed, and we may be yelling at the top of our lungs in one way or another. Maybe our screams are silent, but nevertheless, we're crying out, our hearts are crying out for help. And here's an example of the Lord just reaching out and touching someone who's in need. He, for a moment, forgot the crowd, and he invested himself in this one man who was unnoticed and and not particularly well-liked, and not very powerful, and one who wasn't very influential, and who couldn't really affect very many lives, but he just, he just engaged himself in this quiet act of love. He met a need, and so must we. And the question we need to ask is this, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? There are people all around us that are crying out, just like Bartimaeus. Unwed mothers who have chosen not to abort their children and who are carrying them to term. And and they're crying out for help and for mercy. And our question ought to be, as a body of believers, what can I do for you? And we get so preoccupied in listening to the word and hearing Jesus' words that we forget the needs of people around us. What about the... The battered wives, the the men and women who are struggling in difficult marriages, the battered children, the abused children, the people all around us that that are hurting and crying out. Our question is this, what can I do for you? How can I enrich your life? How can I share in some way God's mercy with you? How can I strengthen your grip on God? What can I do for you? See, servanthood does not mean that we never take care of ourselves. There's nothing wrong with telling people that, that you have a need. There's nothing wrong with sharing with your husband that you, would, that you want him to be more loving or more attentive. We don't need to be... Uh, We we don't need to let people walk all over us. That's not the point. That's not servanthood. The point is that whenever we hear that cry, whenever there's a need, then the question we ask is, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? It didn't make any difference to Jesus whether it was the disciples or it was Bartimaeus. He just wanted to reach reach out and, and touch that need, whatever it was. He's the example for us, the perfect example, as Jesus put it 
The Son of Man, that's uh, His word for Himself. The representative man. Man as He was intended to be. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That's the essence of God. He gives. He wants to give. That's the question He asks of us. What can I do for you? That's the question we should ask of others. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, if we read a passage like this and it becomes very clear that while your mercy is a free gift, servanthood is a costly thing. But you have set the pace for us. You've shown us what it means to suffer and to serve. And it was through that, that quiet act of service that you ransomed the entire world. You, you have given us some idea of how powerful these acts of love and service are. And we would like for you to grip our hearts and impress us with this truth. Help us to ask this question wherever we go. What can we do for you? Help us not to be preoccupied with what others can do for us, but rather what we can do for them. Thank you for this, uh, this look, again, at your, at your love, your gracious character, your tender heart, your desire to reach out and touch our need. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.